You're listening to My Unlived Life, a podcast about the path not taken. I'm Miriam Robinson. A few years ago, my life fell apart in pretty dramatic fashion, and I found myself feeling that somewhere I'd made a wrong turn. I suddenly felt very far from home and family and felt even farther from myself. I began to wonder, what if I had done things differently? We don't like to ask this question. It threatens to trap us in the past without a map back to the here and now. So I decided to make the map. Each episode, I interview someone about another course their lives could have taken. We begin at the point where their paths diverged and together, step by step, we imagine ourselves into the lives they never lived. Because these lives have a lot to teach us about ourselves if we let them. For this episode, I spoke to Davina Quinlivan. Davina is a lecturer in the Department of English and Creative Writing at the University of Exeter. She taught at Kingston School of Art for over a decade and regularly leads the F for Flannery Film and Literature Seminar Series at the Freud Museum. She lives in a rural hamlet on the outskirts of Exeter with her family. Her new book, Shalimar, A Story of Place and Migration, is published by Little Toller and has been co-published in audio by Spherical Audiobooks. She's currently working on a book about rivers and migration, mothers and daughters, as a loose follow-up to Shalimar. When we spoke, Davina and I discussed the moment in her life when her father was diagnosed with lung cancer, a moment that is central to her book. She and her husband were living with her parents at the time, and while she continued to be very involved in her father's care, she chose to move out of the house in his final months, one of several moves that would take her away from suburban London and deeper into the British countryside. Together, we explored what life might have looked like had she stayed living there, along the way examining the ebb and flow of grief, the unexpected impact of wartime trauma, and the resilience and humor we can find in the most challenging times. Hi, Davina. Hello. Good morning, Miriam. Thank you so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm excited because we are here in part because of the publication of your new book, Shalimar out now with Little Taller and also in this incredible audio version out with Spiracle. Um, and the book just, it does the most sort of, there's no way I can describe it. I'm sure that other people are saying this. It, it does the most magical sort of ethereal, wide-ranging dance between your ancestors in Burma and beyond and your parents in Hayes in England and where you are now in the in the English countryside. And at one point you're talking in the book about the women in your family. And I just, if you, if I, if you don't mind, I just wanted to read this one bit because it really felt relevant, which is this. You say, I feel their concertina of folded movement, one lost relative after another at my back, me facing forwards while they patiently wait for the book to open again, revealing their ornate multiplicity. Or perhaps I am a Russian doll harboring my smaller, ever smaller selves. Perhaps there, at the very center, is a Mongolian Shan woman as small as a nut, adorned in intricately woven cloth. And I loved that in part because it it made me think not just of unlived lives, but of sort of multiple lives that you feel can sort of exist within one person, within you. Um, And I just wondered if you could say a little bit about the book in general and about sort of that idea of these sort of many, many selves um, embodied in you by your ancestors. 
Thank you, Miriam. And thank you for that lovely reading. Um, it's always quite strange to hear um, words, even your own your words, coming back at you. Um, and it's always quite disarming because um, I wrote it with this sense of authenticity and being trying to be as truthful as possible and, and how I felt at the time and in, and in myself. So it still, it still feels um, very, very real to me, those words. And um, I wrote them with conviction because the journey of the book was looking at ostensibly these um, seven moves we made across um, deep England or across the English rural countryside after my father was diagnosed with lung cancer um, and tracks that period in time, but tracks back further, um, perhaps three centuries as well. Um, and parallel to that, I look at my family's migration um, and their movements, their um between the major and minor scale my migrations my migrations across the UK and and their migration from from Asia to England in the 1950s um so the book sweeps across in a kind of panoramic through a panoramic vista of of my family and all the all the various people in my family most of them are gone including my father but his his sister his brother his parents um my my great grandparents and so on and um, I wanted to, not in a way resurrect them, but I wanted to feel that their presence was was um, still living living on in my current life, and um, gave me some sense of empowerment and strength through through remembering them. So the that that resonance with the idea of an unlived life was so important to me. As you say, that this the you reminded us of thinking about that that moment in the book of this concertina movement and this folding backwards and forwards of all these other selves and and really feeling that and getting this sense of all those other people that I'm connected to despite feeling quite alone at, at times <laughs> we were talking we were talking just before this weren't we about um when you live somewhere where you don't have a huge amount of family I mean that's sort of one layer of loneliness isn't it when you live abroad when you're an expat you sort of um, you don't have that family sort of in an immediate way. And I guess I wondered if in a way writing this book just felt like you were bringing all of that family close to you, despite your sort of being distanced from all of them. Yes, I didn't necessarily just want to write a biography or a historical um, reflection on on those people in my life and their broader kind of cultural or political connections to greater, bigger, sweeping movements throughout history. I wanted to sort of just forget that for a moment um, and and think about what it meant to me and try and conjure them. So uh, people have asked me whether I'm writing that for my children or who am I writing that for? But it was really about trying to immerse the reader in in those personalities, in those in those moments in my my memory or my cultural memory or my understanding of how ghosts can live in the present. And I really like the idea of, of a kind of ghost, ghostliness or a ghost, a ghosting within the present day so I can hold on to them. And it was like a physical holding on to things when, um, when I knew that everything has, has been lost. I wanted to honour who these people were, but I also wanted to think about what that meant for me and, and, my, and myself, my current position in life. And we're going we're gonna to come at that question, I think, in a slightly different way today, um, because we have chosen a path for you that's at, it's at, the, it's at the core of, of the book, which is around the death of your father. 
And before we get to that moment, I guess I was hoping that you could just say a little bit about where we are in time. The the start of the book and at least the first the first few chapters revolve around this moment which takes place around about sort of autumn this time of year in 2008. Um, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer in July and he passed away in December of the same year. Within those six months, within that period, um, I was still writing my PhD at King's College London and we decided that it would be best if we if we moved out of the family home we had been living with my parents for about six years. That's you and your husband. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we married in 2006. Luckily, my father was there to see to see us get married and my aunt. Um, quite a few people who are now gone um, or shortly after thereafter their, their had gone. Um, so we're at this particular moment in 2008 and... Um, it's it is quite an eventful moment because I I have to leave home or we decide this is the only way it's I think I say something about that in the book of you know we've got this small Jack Russell Terrier and we've got my husband and we've got my mum my dad and the rooms the house is quite small but it's not quite large enough to contain all of us to contain this kind of psychological turmoil and all of the all of the stress and anxiety that was building up in in that house and wanting to give some sort of space to my father to respect his time um, on his own with my mother as well and we'd been living with my parents for a long time um, saving for our first home so that's where we are. I mean there's a couple things about that aside from the sort of heroic living, you know, as a young couple with your parents for six years, which I applaud you. And that's amazing. And I applaud them. There's also, I mean, you were the first in your family to go to university. Is that right? So you're already on a, on an academic path that you maybe didn't anticipate for yourself. Yes. Um, I, I don't think I, I would have, it would have ever occurred to me, um, that I, that I would have, I would have been able, I would have completed a PhD, or that I would would have been accepted onto a course to study. Um, my my par- both my parents were educated in India. My father went to a boarding school in India, but he he kind of went in the last few years before he had to leave to come to the UK. So he had his education was quite kind of cut short. Um, well, somewhat privileged, it was still rather cut short, and he was a prisoner of war as well. So there were kind of various kind of other traumas and difficulties to overcome. My mom went to a convent school in India, so she can read and write, but her education is very limited. So um, I, there, there are many other um, second generation um, children like me who, who have had to find their own way through life and try to mediate and reconcile those, those two or more uh, cultures and, and seeing the world in a very different way from their parents. So it meant, meant a lot to me to finish and to, for my work to be recognised and to be supported. And my, you know, I, I believed I was, I was good enough to be able to complete the PhD and, and I felt that there was a sense of potential there and I, and I owed it to myself to finish. But then this event happened. There was a sort of weight on my shoulders in terms of uh, what to do next. I, I talk in the book about maybe, you know, maybe I should have asked for help or you know, the internet was, wasn't great in 2008. <laughs> If you Google the internet now, you can you can find things. Um, 
but I can find out about anything, how to rewire a plug. Um, but I just needed some help. I needed something and I didn't have that. So all I had was my own sense of self, my own sense of knowledge and what I needed to do and what we needed to do to survive as a family. And that at the time meant that we had to kind of maybe safeguard or preserve ourselves and each other by making that decision to leave home. And mm. so we leave home and we pack up our things, not many things, uh, into a friend's car and we go to Surrey. <laughs> and why was it Surrey? What was in Surrey? Yeah, so my my husband was working in a school, a couple of schools out there. We didn't quite have enough money to rent. Um, rent was hugely expensive then as it is now. Um, mm. But we we managed to find a room in a house in a small village in Surrey. I found a, a room in in a in a kind of stately home, which is has Grade One listed gardens. <laughs> it was very very cut price, mainly because it was used as a retirement home. <laughs> so there were there were a couple of people who were still living there, <laughs> but it was in the process of being converted and renovated so that it could be uh, converted into luxury apartments whatever but we had the downturn of the economic crisis and so on so it meant that renovations had slowed down and there was this opportunity to rent a tiny little turret room at the top of the building with no oven it had two whole it had like two rings um shared washing machine facilities (laughs) um and uh just a tiny bedroom and a living space and we lived like that for about nine months it was a nice distraction actually, because it meant that I was looking at this beautiful countryside and looking at looking at and experiencing um, rural Britain in ways that I'd never had done before. And I'd never seen a forest before. I'd never seen a tree that was uh, 400 years old before, mm. which sounds unbelievable. But actually growing up in um, suburbia, in, in <laughs> outer London, um, unless you drove or unless you were taken on a school trip, then that would be highly unlikely. During that time when you're living in this totally surreal place, but you're finishing your PhD and what was your PhD in? Yeah. So it was in, um, it was in film and feminist philosophy. (laughs) So um, it was actually thinking about um, uh, a couple of filmmakers and looking at their work and looking at, the representation of of the body and and gender in their work, especially around these kind of ideas around um, kind of ethical ideas and feminist ideas around space and the environment, and the way that I was looking at um, ideas around air and breath, which then became rather problematic because my father had lung cancer, mm-hmm. um, so I I had started writing about the lungs and sort of like the idea of thinking about the how the body is represented or how we think about our environment but then as a result of that um now or in recent years with the writing of Shalimar I found that that's the other side of the story or like the other side of the coin that I that I needed to continue with or continue on with because while I enshrouded myself in academic writing and found solace in that and a centering in that all these other kind of um, emotional um, and uh, all these emotional experiences and all these kind of new lived experiences of the world, of the environment. I mean, essentially what we're seeing is that your real evolution as 
a thinker and a writer and a creator is really grounded in that in that PhD and in, in you having finished. And how extraordinary when you talk about, you know, maybe you should have asked for help and just sort of doing what you felt was the correct thing in that moment for your family. I mean, what a decision to make. Your father's been diagnosed with lung cancer. You're in his home. You have the capacity to stay and be a carer. And you choose you choose to go with your husband and to continue. I don't think there was any particular strategy or, or, or plan in mind at the time. Um, I, I was just trying to grab onto things that I could make sense of. And mm. um, it, it would, I didn't really know at the time whether he, he, how long he would have to live. When nurses or when healthcare professionals don't really tell you how long someone has to live, then if you're really young or if you're a bit naive or you don't really understand everything properly because it's never really happened to you before, then you believe or you hope that that person will have a bit longer than six months. I think it's important to to say here that um, my my mum just will, her, she her her ability to be able to deal with this particular moment in time was was not particularly was not particularly good. Um, and she had a li- very limited education and she she wouldn't have been able to be um, uh, strong enough to be able to make that call. But I made the call to the, Mac- the Macmillan nurse and asked where all the cancer was because that's really the only way you will know what the chances are, the likelihood is of that, that person surviving. Um, and I revisit that moment in time quite a lot. The book has a very cyclical quality to it, and so I wanted it to have a non-linear um, structure because I've, I I believe that all of these moments are threaded through time and that they are cyclical and, and time moves inwards. When I talk about the rings of a tree or this, this inward-moving uh, sense of memory and of time. So I wanted, to, and it's also the sense of recuperation as well through doing that, because then you can kind of make sense of things by by um, navigating those things again and again. Can you say what that a little bit more about what that means about time moving inward? What does that mean? So if we think about like these ripples of time, but instead of rippling outwards, there's there's a sense of how everything that we experience in the present is is still haunted by the past. I feel as though we carry all of these moments with us and I write about how my I can still see my father's ghost out on the river X or I can I can see his hands um tracing the breath of the lambs in the barns by our home where we live in Devon in some ways it's a lovely way of being able to to um recuperate or to restore things that were broken or to to restore that sense of grief. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to um, unsettle all of that. There's a sense of relief, and also in in making sense of of all of those, making sense of the strangeness and of and of the trauma through all of those things um, in that process. So for me, it, the writing writing Shalimar wasn't just about just writing this book and oh that will be fun or. It, it comes from such a kind of monumental place of 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 hope of hope of hopefulness of care of of um trying to search for kind of some sort of repair or restoration or recuperation um from trauma 
So it's like a, it's a lifeline, really. I'm interested in the idea of sort of recuperation and repair. And I think it might be interesting to see what happens because clearly this was a question for you, should you have left? And clearly like your life has panned out in a way that I think affirms the choice, but it's something we always hold with us, isn't it? This, you know, and that would have been a completely viable, a completely viable thing to do. So shall we take you back to that place and see what happens if you stay put? (laughs) So you, you, you have this, you have this call with the nurse, you get the diagnosis it's and I think that's really interesting what you say about you know when you're young it's sort of you hear you hear that it's six months but you don't really you don't really believe that do you it's sort of you haven't seen enough of that yet to know but let's say let's say you're sitting there you're talking with your husband you're trying to decide what to do and you just go you say I just can't leave we're gonna stay put. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> We just try to get you in that space and see what happens. Because actually, I should ask the question. I mean, did you feel, not that you should have, but I mean, is what's behind the wondering if you should have stayed? Is it a sense of guilt? Is it a sense of lost time with him? I th- I think not necessarily lost time because that time changes as someone as someone. Um, endures illness and they aren't necessarily present or able to to do anything in those last months and most of the time my father was in bed or he always went to bed quite early anyway <laughs> I'll just say this just to to clarify um he he liked to get up early go to bed go to bed early so if I stayed okay so I'll, I I would definitely stop reading or writing I perhaps or perhaps perhaps no perhaps I would have because then it becomes more of an anchor just as it has become in recent years where um in within all of this the current climate and I wrote I wrote Shalimar um in the heart of the pandemic it's a bit of a cliche thing to say but I think um the real reason for art or for or why some people are creative is to have this uh have the, to have this to have these objects to hold on to or to 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 have to have those the creative process will will give you some sense of peace and wholeness and um stillness so maybe that's just my lot in life where I, I only do something when, you know, everything really hits the fan because I'm no good when everything's <laughs> going really well and everyone's really happy. And But I, I think I probably would have continued to write in some way or another. Let's get a little specific and we can figure out what you're doing. So you're staying in and you describe in the book, it's a it's a three bedroom house and you've got the biggest, you and your husband have the biggest room. Is that right? Yeah, we do. <laughs> As you well should, there's two of you, but you're doing your PhD and you get this diagnosis. And does it mean, because I think we want to figure out if you continue to do your PhD or if you're just doing your sort of doing sort of side writing. So I guess the first question is, what does it require of you? What does his care require of you to be there? Does it mean a sort of ramping up of your efforts on that front? In some ways, the fact that he had six months from that point was perhaps in some ways, and he also had, he also had some chemo. So 
it, it was quite a blessing in a way that he was well enough to have chemo and, and he was moving around talking. Uh, he, he was from an intellectual point of view, he was, he was still able to have conversations and to do things. Um, he had a stroke, he had two strokes. The second one resulted in him, in him going to hospital and then dying afterwards. So that period or between August and December, um, when I think he was, he was kind of functioning kind of okay. So it would have meant that perhaps I would have cooked for him. I did cook for him. What did you make for, what would you have made for him? I made some, I made soups and I made some Burmese dishes. I made some Burmese soups. He liked making this Burmese soup, which is called hincho, which is um, made with cabbage and kind of like shrimp. And it's very clear. It's like a clear soup. He he often made it with lots of cabbage, and it was you know can you imagine the smell of of cab- boiled cabbage in your house? But he <laughs> he was quite fond of that, so he would actually get stuck in and make that himself. But I would have made something like that, or some like dal dal and rice, like lentil soup. And he really liked that too. And he he ate rice with everything. Um, but when you have lung cancer, um, it becomes and also um, I think I think he found it difficult to swallow, so he couldn't really have. Um, like really rich, um, rich meals, or I think it would have involved that. It would have involved perhaps just tinkering around with cleaning and tidying up and trying to find something to do. I probably would have got, tried to get out and go for some walks. I used to like going to the the library in in Hayes in Hillingdon. There was quite a good library yeah. there, so I would do. I would have done things like that. Um, but there is a sense of if you're registered full time, um, you have to have supervisions with your supervisor or you, know, you have to do certain things and you have to produce certain pieces of work. There would have been an emphasis to continue with those pieces of writing. Um, but there's a sense of escapism as well, which I probably refer to a little bit in and out through Shalimar of escapism through art. So we talked about art as this sort of recuperative thing or a way of dealing with trauma or all those kind of things. But also art is also this form of escapism. So I probably would have just had had books to hand or music or, or movies. And how about your husband? How's he how's he doing with this? Is he kind of are you guys kind of bonded? Is it is it hard on him? Well he um he loved my father very much. Um, it's really nice that he got to know my dad as well through living with us, <laughs> which is a very different thing in a way. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it to everyone, but it meant that he really got to know, know my dad. So he really got to know him and he had a lot of admiration for him. Sometimes they would have a, a little bit of a tense discussion. They were both, both very you know, strong-minded. Um, but... So he's a trombonist, so he definitely can't really practice very much in our home. So that would be <laughs> that would be out. Although I don't think my father would have complained, and in fact, I think he probably did practice a little. Um, so you could hear the trombone at the end of the at the end of the road. He practiced in the spare bedroom. It was like a box room, but you know there are things like my my father would be waking in the night as as one would, if you will. So that became very difficult as well. Um, and it wasn't the reason why we had to go, but um, in, a, in a very small house. Um, what do you do in that space in that time when 
someone's ill and you know that they may be dying but they're not gone yet but they're kind of already gone and you're rewriting history there and then because you can see that they've that they're not in your life anymore and so those moments like that where you hear him waking in the night presumably are just really painful yeah i mean i think um yeah and from a practical point of view as well no one no one's getting any rest here and you don't know how you're going to how you're going to feel in those moments um but since then my my mom has also been really unwell so i'm now experiencing that from a very from from a position where um it's still it's it's fresh because my father didn't experience these things he didn't experience aging in this way um and i didn't care for him in the way that i have now since cared for my mom so yeah that was all still to come and i'm writing about that now in a way or i'm looking in my the next book i'm going to be looking at my mom's fear of water and her kind of trauma through living through the war and and the rivers she crossed this river in burma or she was carried across this river as a child and i think she's always been afraid of water from that point onwards so i'm revisiting oh that and i'm revisiting her her aging and and her her years in exeter and um and our relationship and then looking at the rivers that have been important to our lives or the idea of rivers and migration it's interesting to think about you now caring for your mother and doing the sort of daily things that presumably she requires. So, but now we're, we're back in your parents' home and you're 27 and you're doing some of those things for your father, but you're also starting, trying to, um, start a life. You haven't decided to move out. You're staying put for the time being. Um, and you touched on your PhD, but what do you think in terms of, do you, do you park it? Do you try to keep it going amidst all of this? You're not getting enough sleep. What do you think you do with it? I think the problem is if you if you park a PhD or anything like that, it could just be forever because mm. life goes on. And um, I think it's a it's a great it's just such a huge privilege to be able to continue your education through that in that manner. But at the same time, um, it's very difficult to reconcile that with. Um, the impetus of 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 trying to make a a life for yourself, maybe a career for yourself, to hook that into a career because quite often um, a PhD is floats separately from that. If you're doing that full time, you can't really work or do anything else while you're doing that. Although I did, and I I, I did a lot of temping for kind of like media agencies in London and I think I did that I still did that well at that time um and I quite enjoyed that that sense of of going out into the world and just being phoned up and say being told to go to this particular address and so I probably would have continued with that I had started working in the film industry and I'd also started working in um well for corporate companies media companies and I probably would have pursued some of those paths should we think about what which one of them you might have pursued? <laughs> so the image on the cover of the book, on the cover of Shalimar, is from Henri Rousseau's Surprise, um, which is his, is his magical realist painting of the tiger 
um, as it's the tiger is experiencing the the lightning in this rainforest in this tropic tropical storm, and that that's that lives at the National Gallery. So I, I did work for a while for a stint at the National Gallery in um, the press and marketing department, and I worked for various um, media agencies, and I also worked um, behind the scenes on some um, TV shows and movies. I, I did a, a tiny amount, tiny amount of time on Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Um, I did some work experience on the on the sets of Foil's War, and I also also worked with a, a sort of uh, amateur theatre company, and I became a director for that amateur theatre company, and I directed this um, show uh, in uh, 1999, I think it was. So I was, I was, um, I was. A bit younger then, but I was really interested in in theatre, so I may have continued there too. Let's just think for a second, because uh, I mean, you might not do any of these things, but what it feels like you're saying is like the stop me if I'm wrong is pursuing a PhD under these circumstances feels like a lot. That the the kind of absorption required of a PhD is maybe not something that feels feasible under the circumstances. Does that feel right, or am I making that up? I think it I think it feels right. I think also I had the the double kind of tragedy of trying to write about kind of like breath and air and lungs and all these kind of things and I kind of move away from like literal kind of so in a way that it, the PhD kept me kept me grounded or kept me kept me intellectually stimulated as well as um focused in one particular area Com- compartmentalize in other words so I needed to compartmentalize so what happens when you remove that um I need to compartmentalize some other way um I mean, we don't have to we don't have to you could you could continue I, pursuing the yeah, PhD and you could yeah. just be at home yeah let's say let's say I, I decide to do it part-time okay um in fact I did delay things a little um probably by six months but I continued full time, um, but I, I just I just slowed down a, a little bit. Um, yeah, so I probably could have just formally decided to do this part time, um, and and know that that was still there. And it's also giving myself that access to being part of, you know, part of the university, having a library card, all those kind of things, which don't mean probably don't mean very much to non-academics but it's sort of like a lifeline to to that world to to those places to to those conversations to to the buildings what I'm glad about is that we've kept that for you we're going to keep that for you in this in this life where presumably it's arguably even more important if you're actually in the house and you're actually confronting, you know, your father's illness from on a day-to-day basis that you do have that and that you can get out and you can go there and you can come back. Um, and potentially it's hopefully it's fortifying and sustaining for you. I have two questions. My first question actually, before we get farther along, is just really quickly about um, the Russo painting, which you mentioned as part of your you're um, uh, talking about the other jobs that you did, but which is on the cover of your book. Um, I love this painting. I've always loved this painting. And I was really excited when I saw it on your cover because it's so extraordinary. Um, and I guess I was just wondering why, 
why this is the cover because it's such a it's so weird actually i mean it's a really odd painting if you look at it for yeah. a long time it's really super strange and i've never really understood it and i'm just dying to know what you think about it and why it's there yeah so first of all i must um thank and give thanks to holly ovenson who designed the cover and she's amazing do check out her work um <laughs> so we talked about lots of different images and lots of ideas, maybe a tree or a family tree or a mango tree or birds. And I didn't, I didn't really want it to have a conventional image which said to the reader, this is a, a nature writing book or this book is about natural history or this book is about an urban environment or, or any of those things because it didn't, it didn't seem to connect properly to me. But I looked at that painting many times and I'd worked at the National Gallery and I loved its strangeness and the exotic. So that sense of, as you may know, Henri Rousseau had never visited a tropical rainforest, but he had gone to the botanical gardens in Paris and he had spent many hours looking at those tropical blooms. And I, I was trying to work out how I felt about Shalimar, which isn't necessarily I explain at the end of the book in this paragraph at the end of the book but it's like I'm trying to contain this place which is neither my place or my father's place but this kind of zone or this 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 psychogeographic place this floating world which we both occupy and which we both share and it it's not a real place but it's also the word refers to several real places if you google Shalimar the Shalimar Botanical Gardens there's there's all sorts of um, places and also Shalimar the perfume, <laughs> um, but I wanted to use that title and also that idea of of a magical realist place or a place that has more of a symbolic meaning behind it. So like Rousseau, um, I'd never visited Shalimar or any of the Shalimars, but it still is very much real to me. And the writing is a bit like a painting of that place from my in my mind's eye and this conjuring. Secondly, the tiger um, is important to me. So there are many tigers throughout the book. And I think about the Burmese tiger on the bottle of um, Chinthe Balachang pickle, which my father always used to eat this sound of like Burmese pickle, which is very dry. It's like, it's got a very pungent smell and it's kind of like a dry shrimp with chili paste and chili, chili oil and onions and the brand of that is Chinthe and that's a that's a Burmese tiger but also I talk about reading the tiger who came to tea to my children Judith Kerr's amazing children's story um the tigers in India the tigers that my that my uncle had seen and and um uh watched in in um Darjeeling and in Shalimar um and this this symbolism of the tiger is similarly with Judith Judith, Judith Carr's novel book rather, um, the idea of the ti- the war being like this insatiable tiger, where the tiger is just consuming everything and it can never be satisfied, and what will be left? And I think that that shadow of the past and of colonial history and the British Empire and and World War Two in particular, having this kind of effect on on our present lives so that tiger became important to me and also towards the end of the book when we live out in Devon I talk about the three of us 
me, uh, myself and Orlando and Inigo, my children, as three three tigers or three we're just three three tigers looking looking out of the green man and this sense of the animalistic and the natural world and the mythical kind of all becoming enmeshed or um enfolded through this wild landscape um because now I now my children are the only other Burmese children that I know um (laughs) or have known um so uh, to experience so closely and to live live with them in this way so I grew up um very much with with sort of older family members and and not many younger people so when Inigo was born he was the first baby I'd ever held Mm. um so the tiger and and conjuring or kind of bring resurrecting Rousseau through that image is is important to me and it seemed quite quite a neat fit and 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 was not overly complicated and and also hints or is suggestive of of the natural landscape and of these exot the idea of the exotic um and what the exotic means because of course the exotic is about in this sense is also about foreignness and of otherness not only the exotic in the tropical rainforest or in the way that we imagine India or Burma but also how that's connected to maybe preconceived ideas of the exotic or of um, strangeness or otherness. What strikes me is this idea of the exotic and the mystical and the magical that goes through so much of what you've done um and here in your unlived life where you've staved put, it's it's kind of the opposite. I mean, it's it's probably hyper practical and logistical and, um, you know, you're dealing with someone's basic bodily needs, right? It's just really, really sort of hands-on and tangible. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, I'm wondering what that looks like now as he gets a little bit sicker and you're still there and still not sleeping <laughs> what's happening at home well he was undergoing chemo um probably in september or october um or was in and out of that and that requires some hospitalization and then he had a stroke probably early december and then he died a few weeks 3 weeks later or something like that so at that point, yeah, you've got Christmas all around you. Um, no one wants to celebrate Christmas, and they definitely don't have a Christmas tree up. <laughs> and we buy mm. a Christmas tree for our flats, and it sadly stays there until February because we can't think how to how to get rid of it. So it's a real Christmas tree, and that was the first time we bought a real Christmas tree too because we'd always had a plastic one (laughs) I think there's a lot of kind of you know we could we could talk about what you've just said and about about the about the natural world and about the the magical and the mystical through that discussion of different types of Christmas trees because they do (laughs) really definitely represent two different ways of being and um (laughs) they would what do you mean well like they like they would bring down this um uh this plastic synthetic Christmas tree from the loft every year and it would be the same one and 
there's definitely a more of a sense of ritual with buying buying your own Christmas tree. And I know I talk about that as well when we when we move to Surrey, when we move out and up that and we get this tree and um you have much more of a connection to the to the world around you and to to this 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 real the idea of having this sort of plastic tree in your house um and how it becomes part of this kind of commercial endeavor of you know, going to the store, buying this plastic tree and buying this thing that represents a real tree, but isn't a real tree. And then kind of like all the gaudy baubles and the, the tinsel and all of that. Um, it's kind of like rooted in a kind of cultural identity as well of like, there's, there's definitely people that buy real trees and people who always have the fake ones. I think there's this cultural sense of <laughs> what you want or what, or what's expected and, and so my parents would have this thing there, but they, my mom didn't want to put the tree up. Um, and then in the end we bought, we bought some new decorations to mark things by starting over, starting afresh with that. But also a saucepan caught on fire um, the day my father died because I tried to make spaghetti bolognese or something and the oil just singed and then it caught fire. We had a little mini fire in the kitchen um, and this was before Christmas. He passed away before Christmas. So he passed away just, um, yeah, just before Christmas. Yeah, just a few days before Christmas. It's interesting, actually. Those things would have been exactly the same, whether we stayed or not, um, and all the processes afterwards of dealing with someone who's passed away, phoning various companies, trying to sort out the the administration of that, identifying his body. Um, because my mum mm. wasn't able to do that, so those things were she wasn't continue. able to do it no. practically or just emotionally. No, she didn't. Yeah, she, emotionally, she didn't want to do that. Can we? I just want to go back a little bit. Um, as you mentioned, your mom. I'm just in terms of the time when you're in the house. You know, during this sort of August December period, sort of what is your what are things like with between you and your mom? in that time because obviously without you there she was the primary carer presumably and now you're there and you're helping but obviously those things can get quite challenging what do you think it would have been like if you'd been in the house with her she would have found it very traumatic I I took over a lot of the a lot of the things when my father became ill um and just just ensuring things were still running smoothly that was generally my my job um I think I would have had to have supported my mother a lot a lot more um but then there's only so much she can do so she's she's led a very simple life and emotionally and intellectually she's just not able to deal with a lot of things so that made it very difficult for me but the wishful fulfillment of having this other person or this alternative maternal figure who's going to um make it all all right is is first of all not helpful and also unrealistic because no one really has that so what do you mean no one really has that the per the perfect the perfect the perfect mother perfect the perfect mother or the perfect resolution or solution to that problem of needing another another older figure in their lives, someone else who can help you to deal with those problems. What if you don't have that? Hopefully we all do. But I 
I have never really had that. I think I talk about that in the book of being, of stepping forward, of having to step forward and to propel myself forward to do things and to achieve things or to get things done. I don't know, you could say self-actualization or any of those things, but actually it's just the sense of of becoming a person, be, take, taking charge of your life, um, that nothing else was... Uh, thrust upon me. I just had to do that for myself. That's what it sounds like, that decision that you made to leave the house at this moment. I mean, that's what it it sounds like. It sounds like somebody who's individuating, somebody who's going, you know, yes, this is happening at home. And simultaneously, it's also the time where I'm meant to be starting my life. And those things are going to have to coexist somehow. But I think the, the ramifications of that are so that um, there's a there's a problem with probably over analyzing or over or trying to account for things all the time or trying to recuperate from things or or assessing things in a way that means that I always feel confident in the decisions I've made. But I think you can only really you do I, always feel confident. I try, I try to I try to be, but you can only really be um, sure of yourself in that moment. And so I just give myself a break and just accept that um, I've made those decisions to the best of my knowledge in that moment because you just don't know. You know, it's a really, really, it's a really difficult time. It's a very difficult time, and I'm doing something where the time is ticking, and I'm continuing this this sort of adventure in further education, where which is costing money, but I also move forward. So. Um, I'm have I I'm giving myself that time to reprocess that now, or or as though mm. I've, I've some of that maybe even the the grief and dealing with that trauma has not been entirely resolved because I I had to protect myself and save myself, so it it disperses into like little frag fragments throughout the rest of the future where you have to still come to terms with that. Um, it's very much how trauma and processing and grief seems to work, isn't it? It's yeah. sort of you can you you almost your system almost knows what you can handle and you get these sort of little chunks of it, but it's what's so disarming about grief, isn't it? That you kind of you're kind of bopping along and you think you're fine and then actually it's when you're fine that like your system can handle a little bit more and suddenly you're plunged back into it again and you're kind of going, "Well, this isn't fair." <laughs> yeah, so I think definitely for for anyone who has lost someone or who's dealing with those things now, um, I hope that I hope that there will be some sense of um, some sense of not necessarily relief, but some sense of empathy and acknowledgement of of some of those feelings or how that could feel. Um, although some of the journey of Shalimar is very specific, I think. In, through that specificity or the more specific something is the more universal it becomes mm. um so while we could say oh this is a story about migration and um heritage and uh, you know multiculturalism and all those things it's also just about dealing with with grief in many forms the grief the grief not only related to my dad or attached to my dad but also the grief of the grief attached to 
that cultural trauma of not really knowing my great grandmothers, those grandmothers that you mentioned at the beginning of our podcast. I've never, I don't even know what they look like. I wanted to talk about this moment where I just collapse everything, where everything becomes uh, flooded and is every, every place that I've encountered or lived, inhabited, lived within, um, becomes flooded with water. And there's this kind of very symbolic uh, moment that has to occur. I wanted all the story and all the, um, the contents up thus far to become uh, destabilised or to kind of just just break all of that down again and to fill that with water with whether I'm thinking about the rivers in India or Burma or the River Thames or the Grand Union Canal um, or the the River X in Devon. I just wanted everything to become unsettled. So we have um, kind of like cars upside down. We have the, the, the oak trees in Hampshire become ships again, sailing down the high street, which is flooded with water and the moon, um, you can see the sails of the ship against the the moonlight, um, and funny things like um, like my my dad's cigarettes turning into kind of like um, uh, razor clams, or the telephone becoming like a a lobster burbling underwater. Um, and it was there was a great sense of relief in in rewriting all of those elements and this magical realist. Um, uh, transformation which occurs and then at the end we're left with my father and it and there's this moment where I say goodbye to him and it was this this sense of letting go so I wanted to do that in the book and I wrote that probably just in it just in one moment and I didn't really change it at all after then and I say you know goodbye I have no regrets I relinquish you and he goes back to the water and I felt that for me that just embodied or encapsulated that sense of letting go which I hadn't Mm. done and I think that that means the most for me or that probably encapsulates the book more than any other part of it just that that kind of resurrection but also that cathartic kind of transformative elements of of saying goodbye but through through this form through this book Absolutely. And I, I, that, that image of the unsettling and the way that you literally sort of try, and it does feel, it feels like the sort of silt in the ocean, doesn't it? That sort of churning and unturning things upside down. And I thought it was a really interesting phrase. I think you were saying the, the grieving of your grandmothers or your, you know, great grandmothers and great grandmothers who you'd never even known. And we had talked about this idea of living out these people's lives to a certain extent, right? Or sort of embodying or or kind of absorbing these people into your life. And it feels like, I don't want to be too reductive, but it feels like what you've done is you've brought them all in in order to help you with your grief. This sort of wild sort of tempest of, of generations and women and family and, you know, and, and that sort of in juxtaposition to you know, you and your mother and your husband and your father in that house in Hayes, you know, quietly sort of cooking for him and feeding him as he passes away. What I should say is um, I didn't set out for it to be exactly that. I didn't set out Mm. with a, a focused agenda or some sort of plan of what it should be or what it should look like. I had the first chapter written in 2010 
um, the first chapter where my father is climbing this mango tree and he's moving through the foliage and the monks have said, you're going to die if you eat those mangoes. And he does eat them. And this sense of death just hits him at that point where he's fearless and he doesn't care and he'll be sent away as a result to Shalimar. And I had that story in mind. My, my, he loved telling these stories. Sometimes it really annoyed my mum. She got really fed up. You know, he was like, I'll just tell you that story again. But actually, that's what I grew up with. I grew up with his voice telling me, these, telling me about these places that I'd never been to. So I wrote that, and I had nowhere to go with it because I thought, okay, is this going to be some kind of really – is this going to be a story? And am I, am I, am I going to – imagine he's this character and then just tell a story and I can draw on some of these ideas but just make it into a story um or if it's a memoir then that means I really have to start talking about myself and I don't want to do that now I didn't want Mm. to do that um in 2010 and I didn't really know I didn't really feel as though I had I had I had the knowledge or the power to to do that and then I just decided to start writing about that moment in 2008 and it still felt like so I think Deborah Levy writes about this as well she's spoken about this with her you know she, she's written these incredible memoirs but also that person who's writing the memoir isn't necessarily you know her, it's not her it's still Deborah Levy the author it's mm. she's inhabiting this space as the author but it's there's it's somewhat removed it's still not the is the authentic self but it's it's kind of like she's you have to step into the shoes of the author and so I was writing about myself and as I saw that happening um it kind of gave it made me feel more comfortable and I realized that I could I could write about this and I could kind of see quite objectively in a way as well and I'd been reading some nature writing and um the work of uh people like William Fiennes where he 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 becomes very ill while writing his PhD, in fact. And I probably, maybe that's what got me thinking in this, um, this The Snow Geese, this wonderful book. And he decides to go on this journey to explore the migration habits of snow geese. But in doing that, it actually becomes this kind of Odessian journey, this sort of journey of, of reflection and thinking about the world around him and thinking about, history and time and memory I just thought well okay but I don't I don't have any snow geese to follow what am I going to do here but I had that sense of nature which was in all our lives from from the beginning and the end and so that becomes the the kind of the connect connective life connective tissue between all, all of the, the work that we're all connected through the space around us through through our environments and how we engage with those environments and I can connect the river x with my dad's um swimming near the the Irrawaddy river in Burma and um the water and the waterscapes the landscapes that he inhabited which were very different from the ones he inhabited in Hayes and actually it brings us back to when you think about the environments that we're in if we carry out your unlived life just a little bit farther, and if you don't move to Surrey in August and you stay, right, you stay through Christmas, let's say, and after your father passes away and you're working with your mom to do, as you described it, the sort of administration of in the aftermath of a death, which feels so cruel that you have to be sort of 
lumbered with those things when you're grieving so much. What do you guys do? Do you and your husband stay in the house longer to look after your mom? So my mom, eventually we moved my mom to Surrey as well because there wasn't really anything left for her there in some shape or form that still would have happened. So we we were only really in Hayes because it was near Ealing where my auntie lived. He was tied to being near his elder sister who raised him from a very young age and they used to take her shopping when her husband passed away and I write about that. So that was important. That was an important um, ritual to take her shopping and to get her pension and to do all those things once a week and then she would stay at home for the rest of the time. I think you know they were all kind of under house arrest at some point during the Second World War. So there was a sense of being insular and being inside as well. But my mom likes going out. That's interesting. When I wrote it, I thought, well, okay, I could delete this because why is it, you know why is it relevant to anyone or why would anyone want to know? But I think it's because it's so we have stereotypical or conventional ideas of how these things play out. But actually, there were so many. The, that kind of trauma of the Second World War and of that kind of that colonial trauma and, and um, the effects of, of all of that time are still were still playing out in the fact that my aunt would only leave the house once a week, in the fact that my my father was very stuck in routines and in um, very structured beha- behavior, um, you know, and, and wouldn't go. He never went on holiday, for instance. But I think that it's very likely connected to all of those traumas, which I thus inherit too, though they haven't happened to me, they carry on. So, yeah, so I think we would have moved my mum. She was in her late 60s, and I, I think she was starting to feel disconnected from community. She wasn't really going out um, a great deal, or if she was, she had decided um, she wasn't sure about any of those routines anymore so so something would have had to have happened I think the idea of the house or like domestic space or the home is is such a rich such a rich idea it I mean it's so symbolic or you know how we Mm. how we connect to the idea of home um but then it takes on this yeah yeah and it takes on this really different meaning if if uh if if it's connected to house arrest as opposed to being a yeah. place of kind of willing retreat when you're sort of stuck there it's it's a really different it's a really different thing for the house isn't it yeah i think my aunt only went out on mondays for a decade and i we all just accepted that but of course that's not norm that's not normal it's not normative behavior she never went to the cinema she never popped out to a community event or or went on holiday or but she was very content in that but maybe content in the safety of of being at home and my father similarly so but then that made me curious to want to get out and to go far beyond and I have truly gone far beyond further than most of my relatives by leaving West London and coming out moving several times there's about six or seven moves, including my mother's move, in ten years, um, and and I, I we we went from from Hayes to Surrey and then to this place in Hampshire, which is almost like this idyllic, semi semi rural sort of little little village, 
which is which obviously had lots of commuters and lots of people inhabiting it who kind of worked in London or worked in the centre of London. But it was very strange and it made me feel quite alienated again. <laughs> I think that comes from, you know, being a child of, of immigrants, of, of being Anglo-Burmese, Anglo-Asian, and growing up in Hayes in quite a working class environment um, of not having access to, you know, a great wealth of education or of cultural experience, certainly not compared with perhaps my children or the fact my children get to go to museums and stuff like that. But I didn't really do very much of that. The story is rooted in this this sense of displacement or or feeling othered or this sense of otherness and trying to make peace with that and also to turn that on its on its head and to create something hopeful and, and affirmative from all of these negative spaces or from from all from cultural trauma from the trauma my my parents experienced from um from a lack of privilege from a lack of knowledge I I say at one point in the book you know I have I have no class I have no status I have no power um I I don't know how I'm going to do this or I don't know if I have the strength to do anything but I do I think there's a the wildiness. Mm. There's a sense of wildness, and in my father's kind of tempting fate and of eating those mangoes, I probably inherited a similar kind of audacity in being able to um, escape, escape <laughs> um, some sort of difficult, horrible um, fate. And then we had the pandemic soon after. So actually, um, the pandemic mainly resulted in in us staying at home. Um, But we lived in rural Devon, so we could look out from our home. We could look out at the sheep and at the fields and the trees and, um, and gather and gather up. I think that's a perfect place to end, don't you? Yeah, I think so. Thank you. I have to ask you one quick question before we go, which is something I've been thinking about a bit about lately, which is um, having lived through um, bits of your unlived life with me just now, is there anything that you think you would like to bring from that unlived life into your current life? But that could be an emotion, a feeling, a tangible thing, anything you'd like to to bring forward? Yeah, it was really interesting revisiting that moment. And I think that since we were talking about homes and belonging and building a home, I realized, especially recently or in the last few weeks, it, it, it occurred to me that I was actually repeating some of the habits and some of the, some, I was trying to build or recreate some of my, some of those things, those ideas or those, those objects that I attached to my family home and to, to my childhood so it might be the way that we arrange the furniture or, or certain things that we put in place. And I talked about my aunt's home and how it conjured this sort of magical place or this, this kind of zone that reminded them of India and of Burma. But maybe I'm doing that too in the way I move ahead. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. Um, well, I think all that's left is for me to say thank you so much for joining me on My Unlived Life. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you so much, Miriam. It's been a pleasure to speak with you too. 
Tina's episode is so full of vivid imagery, as is her book. But one image which keeps popping out for me is that juxtaposition of the plastic Christmas tree, which her parents bought every year, and the real one, which they bought the year her father died. It feels like such a tangible representation of a striving for authentic connection and experience, whether that's with her writing, her family, her ancestors, or even her environment, as opposed to something a bit more superficial. For her unlived life, Davina wanted to explore what might have happened if she had stayed at home with her father following his diagnosis. But as we went into it, it struck me that not a huge amount in her connection to him or her story changed during those few months before Christmas, despite a change in geography. She still took an active role in his care and in helping her mother in whatever ways she could. They still ended up moving on, ultimately bringing her mother with them. It's so easy to wonder what might have been when it comes to our loved ones in their final days, whether there was anything that could have been different, whether an opportunity for greater connection might have presented itself. But for Davina, it didn't matter where she was. There was something authentic there. And just like that Christmas tree, it was something worth celebrating. If you're a fan of My Unlived Life, I'd be so grateful if you'd help spread the word by rating, reviewing, subscribing, or following wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, by sharing on social media. Thank you so much for listening.